From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The first wave of cyber evaluators for a new Defense Department program could start work as soon as next month. Katie Arrington, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, says a, quote, pilot pathfinder for training the first certified third-party assessment organizations should happen by late April. Fifth Domain reports Arrington says other agencies are interested in the CMMC program that requires the C-3PO's to audit companies. Amazon Web Services is, quote, likely to succeed in its protest of the Jedi cloud contract at the Defense Department, according to a Court of Federal Claims Judge Patricia Campbell-Smith. She writes the likelihood of success is why she granted Amazon's request to have Microsoft and the Pentagon stop work on the contract. FedScoop reports Microsoft says the court order focuses on one factor out of many in the award. One protest is in and another may be coming in the Navy's Next Generation Enterprise Networks recompete contract. General Dynamics Information Technologies protesting the award of the NGNR contract to Lidos. FedScoop reports GDIT is an incumbent for part of the work Lidos won. The incumbent for most of the work, Prospecta, hasn't said whether it will protest the loss. Modernization initiatives like the Centers of Excellence and other efforts across government are driving the stand-up of new programs with new goals. Experienced program leaders, though, say the classic principles of program management apply to new programs and new technology. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. He's former executive director of the Secure Border Initiative Program Management Office at Customs and Border Protection. Greg, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Good morning. Thank you. Our friend uh, Dan Chenick is writing about this breakfast club that you participated in yes. a long time ago. And as I said before we went on the air, I think it's neat to see the fruit of seeds that were planted a long time ago. What was kind of the genesis of this Breakfast Club program? Well, there were several of us, Dan, uh, Alan Baluda, Stan Soloway, Jim Williams and I, and a couple others off and on, had a big concern about how the government is managing large programs. Mm -hmm. There's billions of dollars in some individual programs at hundreds of millions, and we just didn't think the government had a good process for managing uh, those large programs, and we want to try to find a way to make it better. What did you look at as you went through this process, and how has what you looked at and the work that your team did, this was an ad hoc thing. This was not something that somebody in an agency said, or OMB said, you should go do this. This is a bunch of people that cared about this stuff. What did Correct. you look at, and what did you learn from that process? Well, fortunately, at the time, uh, we had the Office of Federal Procurement Policy was very interested in this, and Rob Burton, I think, was administrator at that point. Mm -hmm. And he was gracious enough to work with us. We did surveys to the workforce uh, through OFPP to gain insight from what the work workforce thought. We looked at performance. We looked at indicators on reports. And what we found out is many of the organizations didn't have a system to support program managers. They didn't understand the value of it. They didn't invest in it. And we found they invested a lot in oversight mm -hmm. to try to find out what happened when a program went wrong, but they didn't invest enough to help a program move forward. And there's a reason the rearview mirror on the car is smaller than the windshield, <laughs> right? You can't move forward by continuing to look back. They needed to invest in how to move forward. The takeaway that I had from all of the deliverables that you guys had, and this, is, this goes back, I think, 2005 was Correct. when this started, 
is there also there was investment and oversight to look at what went wrong. There wasn't much investment to look at when a program went well. Correct. To apply that to future programs either. It, exactly. Bad news grows legs like crazy yeah. in this town, and and when good things happen, nobody seems to care. And that was one of the recommendations that we had: is leadership needs to really look for those programs and then learn from those and what are some best practices, including even things like change management. That was one of the things that we found missing. For big programs, it's not just about delivering some new capability, it's about changing how the business operates. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of culture that happens with that. And even with the best strategy, I believe culture eats strategy for lunch every day. So you have to really tackle that change management aspect as well. You've hit two nuggets there that I wanted to pursue. One of them is that whether it's technology, whether it's financial management, whether it's human capital or IT, we always seem to come back to the cultural issues and we always come back to the business change management issues, right. is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely, and that's part of that means you need to start with really what problem are you trying to solve mm -hmm. and what are the elements of that? Is it process, people, technology? Usually it's a mix of that and how do you get that balance right? If you focus on one or the other, you will get out of balance and you really won't get the benefit of the investment you're trying to move forward on. And on that people process and technology concept, I hear more and more people arguing, especially within the last two or three years, and especially under the framework of the President's management agenda, that the people and the process are more of the issue than the technology. The technology has pretty much been cooked. It, I, I agree. The technology uh, I have found last 10 or 15 years is really not <coughs> the issue. It is the people in the process. Mm -hmm. There are some organizations, DOD and a few others, that are trying to bend some laws of physics uh, from a technology perspective. Most organizations aren't doing that. We're taking things that are available from a technology perspective out in the commercial marketplace and trying to apply them in the government environment. And that application is really where that intersection of people and process happen. Our friend Dan writes in GovExec about these seven S's right. that you and your colleagues came up with. We don't have time for all seven, but what are kind of the big bangs that came out of that? Uh, so a, a couple of those that are really important, and the first one is about stakeholder management. You know, how do you make sure you get the right people at the table to understand how to move forward? Another is having skilled program managers. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have people that are certified and ready to go? And, and we understand that a certification doesn't mean a person is going to be excellent when they move into a program management position. But I'd ask if you were sitting on an airplane and they came on and said, today's pilot is Sally Smith, and she really doesn't have a pilot's <laughs> license, but she's working hard and she's... Certification can make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the end all, but it's something that shows there's a core competency there for somebody to be able to move forward. What are the things that agencies that have done this well have done? Are, what are the common threads among those success stories? So, right? common threads, they invest in program management, they recognize this is a valued skill set and they manage it that way. And they've structured program management in those programs to be supported by the organization. I've gone into some organizations and when they do a review, it's the program manager on one side of the table and all the CXOs on the other side of the table and it's more like a grilling or an inquisition. Yeah. And the program manager is really alone trying to deliver. When I've been there, I've been tried to flip that and have the program manager and the CXs all on one side reporting then to the COO, showing that as a team, the CXOs and the program manager are working together to try to deliver improved performance. All right, 30 seconds left. How do we measure better performance in programs to see that we got the outcomes that we want? On time, under budget, is that like the main thing? Uh, you certainly would start with that, but mm -hmm. it's really also what's the improvement in the organizational performance? Because you can deliver a program on time and under budget, 
but it doesn't have the performance improvement. And that goes back to understanding what problem are you really trying to solve. Measuring performance is first and foremost. Greg Giddens, thanks as always, my friend. Great to see you. Thank you. Up next, using bots to make government work easier. Straight ahead on Government Matters, developments in robotic process automation helping agencies win. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Labor Department will team up with the General Services Administration to create a center of excellence to focus on robotic process automation. It's not the only agency incorporating the new technology into its workflow. Mark Mancher is Principal and Global Public Services Robotics and Cognitive Leader at Deloitte. Mark, welcome back. Last time you were on the program, we talked about enterprise robotic process automation right. just at the end of the conversation, and I wanted to tease that idea out. What does that look like sure. for an agency in uh, the size of a government organization? Sure, so we actually are seeing that implementation now. We see places like the FDA and the CIA that have implemented enterprise. What it means is that it's no longer proof of concept. Mm -hmm. It's no longer pilots. What we're seeing is the ability to, like at the CIA, using their ServiceNow platform, you can click on a button and you can have someone come and do an assessment. You can then get a bot deployed. You can then monitor a bot. At the FDA, we're seeing it in different areas there from the intake of drug application approvals through the CFO's office. So what we're seeing is um, dozens and hundreds of bots now coming in to implementation where we can deliver better service to citizens at an enterprise scale. As we chatted before we went on the air, right. I said what's exciting about this is it sounds like this is fully cooked and you said... I said this is like the Thanksgiving turkey on ABC. It's 95% done, it's in the oven, but you have to do the last little bit of it to yes. finish it. We are seeing RPA in every agency, in every department, we're seeing it in states, we're seeing it in higher ed, it is here, it's both POC, proof of concept, and at scale now. What has happened to make that scale work, and what do you want to see organizations do that are not quite at scale yet to take that next sure. step? Personal heroics. Mm. I would say there's a leader, an SES, or a senior uh, executive, who has said, RPA is here, let's not be scared of it. Yep. It's already implement implemented, let's have a proof of concept, and then let's run the tables and let's get it in because we can deliver better service to citizens through our PA. So it's personal heroics still that's making this happen. And what do those heroics, what do those heroes do to advance this cause? They break down the barriers. Mm. So was your question about cost or cause? About cause? Either Francis? one. Either one. So for what they do to break down the cause is they look at IT, they look at the business, they look at acquisition, and they champion it through the processes so RPA can be implemented. From a cost point of view, they lay out the business case that says we're spending a million dollars, for instance, on back office functions or on support contractors. If I can take half of that and put it to the mission, if I can get drugs to market faster, if I can get enrollment faster, if I can get welfare checks out faster, why aren't we doing it today because this technology is here? So if we use the people process technology old saw that Greg sure. and I talked about in the last part of the conversation, the RPA is the technology. Implementing the technology is that piece of it. You just talked about the process. What we haven't covered in this conversation is the people. What's the, what are successful people doing implementation-wise to let their non-technology people know this is not something to be scared of, this is something Something that's going to help you deliver on mission better. Well, they're explaining it. It's when we first hear a bot, we think of um, bots that are doing harm to systems mm -hmm. or bots through the cyber world. This is a different kind of bot. 
Sometimes I wish that when Blue Prism crafted the name RPA and put bot in it 10 years ago, they had never called it a bot. Yeah. I don't know if we've had the implementation success we've had, but these aren't bots like we see bots you should be scared of. These are digital laborers or digital employees. Over six years of doing this, I've never seen one person who went home and said, I did 1,000 emails today. People want to do services for citizens, and these bots are enabling it. What are you going to, what's the, kind of the next level of this? What, what is the next result that people get that maybe they're not getting today, but as a result of scale or advances in technology or whatever they're going to see? Sure, we're seeing two different things happen. One of them is we're seeing bots become workers linking applications together. So what's powerful about that is it may not be the bot is doing just a process, but if I can take two applications and bring them together mm -hmm. where I can move data or I can do other types of work, the worker bot's in the background. The other thing is we're starting to see the advancement of handwriting technology and uh, character recognition technology where if you're bringing forms, driver's licenses, birth certificates, pay stubs into claims forms, into your environment, I can now read those and I can have bots pick up and move to other applications so I can deliver services without um, having manual work done at each of the different stages and I can serve citizens better. So the, what it sounds to me like the, maybe the most exciting thread of all of those great threads you just laid out is if you have bots talking to each other, the growth potential here is exponential and not linear. Sure, we see banks that have a thousand bots running in the background and they're all not doing core banking functions. Some of them are cleaning data or some of them are just linking applications together. This is just digital labor. Mm. All the bots are doing is they're doing the repetitive tasks that people do. They are taking data from a spreadsheet and moving it into another system because the systems haven't been linked together yet. Eventually they'll all be linked together, but people don't uh, deliver joy from moving data from one place to another. They want to do the work of government and these bots are enabling it. We have less than a minute left. It strikes me that the risk here is making sure that you don't have a garbage in, garbage out problem. Is that fair to say? Well, I would say that uh, garbage in, garbage out, if you have, um, don't have the money today, mm. the capital dollars to improve your IT systems, but if I could put a process on it today that takes a 10 minute process and makes it 30 seconds, and I can do that for a year or two until you have the money, I can deliver better services. Is that garbage in, garbage out? I don't know. To me, that's better service to citizens. Yeah, about 30 seconds. What I'm referring to is the idea that if you make even the, the slightest error in the way that you write the bot, you wind up with a result that's not what you wanted. Uh, bots go through testing. Mm. You have six or seven gates of testing. Okay. Once you lock it down and you do functional testing on it, the bot does exactly what you tell it to do, so bots don't make mistakes. Mark, thanks very much as You're always. Welcome. Great to have you here. Up next, tightening telework at the Social Security Administration and all across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, are agencies getting work more work done or are they making things worse? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Employees at the Social Security Administration have to come into the office more now than they did under the agency's old telework policy, but private sector companies around the country are expanding telework to respond to diseases like the flu and coronavirus. 
Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. And just to make sure that you're safe while you're here, I have oh, some hand sanitizer you. for you, Danny. Um, you can't get this everywhere anymore. It's hard to find. It, it is. It, it, it's it like is. gold now. Um, thank you for coming on, as always. What do you think the, the agency should be thinking about, about telework today, given what's going on, not just with coronavirus, but with thinking about productivity and other issues? Yeah, well, there's, there are actually two competing things right now, because the, the government, should I move this back to yeah, you? Yeah, we don't need that. Okay. <laughs> the government has actually been relooking at telework and actually scaling it back at agencies like Social Security, EPA, USDA. There's been announcements over the last several months basically saying, we're shrinking our telework activities and pulling people back into the office. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, with the corona outbreak, these same federal agencies and a broader set of federal agencies are thinking about how do we change our work footprint to get through the next few weeks or next few months so we're not losing productivity and we're taking the right steps to avoid mass quarantine at federal agencies or mass impact of the virus, mm -hmm. and then you're reinstituting telework. And so that's, that's something that's going to have to be rationalized, but I think fortunately, because the government has been teleworking for a long time, and for example, like if there's a snow day, that they've been issuing telework days, mm -hmm. that there's some practice out there, and agencies now, many of them, know how to operate in a telework capacity. As all of this has been happening, and OPM's been releasing what they've been releasing about, specifically about the virus and, and flu and so on, yeah. and agencies are re-looking at their telework policies, strikes me that what's been lost in this discussion is the overall view at continuity of operations planning. I haven't heard anybody talk about COOP in government I, for a couple of years now, I think. Yeah. Is that something that's been lost in the shuffle because of maybe the budget lurching back and forth of the last couple of years? Or is there a discussion going on that I've missed? Or what, what is your sense of that? I think what happened is, is that the government spent a lot of energy and focus years ago working on COOP because that was a big issue at the time, mm -hmm. post 9-11, post some of the crises that happened. There was a recognition that more needs to happen and the world's become a more threatening place and federal agencies started to get smarter about that. So if you go back in time, you'll see a lot of energy. But once those things were done, they start to get up into steady state. Mm -hmm. And so now they're in steady state. Yes. But with this uh, virus, you know, it, it makes you relook at all that you've done and say, well, have we prepared for this type of contingency as well? And are we as good as we need to be? So, for example, if you're an agency that's going to start, let's say, rolling part of your workforce into a telework in order to reduce the amount of co-location, you know, is that something that was part of your coup planning and did you practice it or, or study it or, or, or design it? Now I think they'll be relooking at those coup plans given this is a new a new challenge that the government hasn't faced. So when you, you use those three words that I think are interesting, practice, study, and design, yeah. that implies a strategy that is kind of what I was getting at. I'm not, I think steady state's a great way to put it too. I yeah. think agencies got to a point where they, okay, we have a coup plan, right. so we're good. And we don't have to worry about that anymore. And I think if we're seeing anything, regarding this outbreak, it's that there is no such thing as a steady state, that this is something that, another thing that needs to be added to the list of ongoing operations, something we pay attention yeah. to on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and, and you know me, I'm a silver lining type person. Yes. So if there is a silver lining here is that with each new challenge that the government faces, we get smarter and we incorporate it. And that not only is, you know, it's, it feels a little reactive because mm -hmm. now we're, but also it helps us be more proactive because with this 
virus situation, as we do scenario planning in the government going forward, we'll have better insights in terms of the types of things that could happen. It's going to open our minds to a lot of different new scenarios that we can uh, game theory on and make improvements. So what do you, what, if you were watching this from inside an agency, from one of your old jobs, yeah. what would you be paying attention to or what would you advise somebody in that role to be paying attention to right now? Yeah, well, first of all, communication is is clear. And, and there's, there's, you know, you don't want to over-communicate from too many channels. You want to centralize your communication, but do it often. You want to have feedback loops to hear how things are going and what people's reaction to. You don't want to set something in stone. You want to be fluid and get feedback and find that equilibrium of the right outcome going forward. Mm -hmm. um, you want to be monitoring the situation as closely as possible and open to trying different things to find the right solution. But right now, I think the, the biggest emphasis is can we uh, create environments in which we don't have people as, as co-located as they normally are mm -hmm. in order to avoid spread, but also in the event that, that there is uh, a situation where someone needs to be quarantined, you might not want to have the whole organization in that status. So yep. figuring out how to segment your workforce is going to be critical, I think, coming up, at least as we monitor how this thing evolves. We have less than a minute left, and yeah. we joked about the hand sanitizer, but there, there's, a, there's a buzz here. There, there's a reaction here. How do, what's the leadership's role in any organization at preventing overreaction, making people go too far the wrong direction? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the hard jobs of, of being a leader. First of all, I mentioned communication, mm -hmm. but it's also, you know, you know, making those judgment calls, involving people in a broad part of your organization. Don't isolate yourself and make decisions. Stay informed with what's going on, what, the, what public health officials are saying, what the administration is saying, what your other federal agencies are doing. Don't do things in isolation. Understand what your peers and your peer agencies down the street are doing. And listen to your line uh, managers, your middle managers, uh, what are they seeing on the ground and what's going to work for them in terms of, of a successful outcome? Danny Werfel, thanks as always, my Thank friend. you, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.